In the last century, the tides of conflict swirled around Europe as the world's largest powers fought for dominance over air, land and sea. The North Sea was a critical theatre that could have determined the future direction of the planet in two world wars. Since the guns fell silent on VE Day in May 1945, Europe enjoyed 76 years of peace. Until recent events in Ukraine. But the North Sea was transformed into one of the economic hubs of the world. A number of major shipping lanes converge in its cold waters, bringing goods to Europe's northern coast. As well as being one of the centres of world trade, the North Sea also contains some of the most promising real estate for the current green energy revolution as offshore wind farms multiply to take advantage of the stormy conditions. There's just one problem, UXO, or UXO. Analysis suggests that there may be as much as 1.3 million tonnes of munitions lying just below the seabed. This makes running cables or performing foundation work at sea dangerous. So any locations where this unexploded ordnance, or UXO, is a risk, requires careful site investigation before it can be declared safe. But some areas are easier to investigate than others. And with explosives, how careful is careful enough? Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Jane Sophia. For this episode, we've partnered with Fugro to learn about some of the innovations being made in the search for unexploded ordnance. In this kind of work, human intervention is increasingly unacceptable. But there are still those hard-to-reach places where a remotely operated vehicle just cannot operate. The surf zone, for example. Close to shore, an active tidal region with a lot of churn on both the seabed and the surface. Fortunately, this is one of those areas where technology advance is very real, and we have some new kit to talk about. And it has been used for the first time to safely advance a project that will give Europe a clean energy boost and make the future safer for all of us. But before we get to the new equipment, first we should take a step back and understand a bit more about an UXO search, and how it would normally be executed. I'm working in the offshore survey industry almost 20 years now. This is Vincent van Santen. It started in the Netherlands, Amsterdam, in a, in a small company that was more or less a, a system integrator for the survey industry. Now Vincent works for Fugro as a business development manager for UXO. And this fits in nicely with that, with my, uh, with my own core uh, value as well. So the, the, the UXO risk is a real risk uh, in the world not only because of the explosive, but also because of um, uh, environmental issues. And if we can get rid of that, uh, I think we make it a, a better world. Vincent's job is to keep an eye on what's going on in the market. How many projects there are, what the requirements are, what developments are going on. And it has led him to a realisation. It is becoming more and more relevant. We typically think of um, World War I or II, uh, that uh, ammunition was dumped in the sea. But what most people don't realize is that all the NATO countries have dumped a lot of ammunition way into the 90s in the seas. Now, with the seas becoming more and more crowded with growing trade and energy generation, it is increasingly difficult to stay in regions that are known to be perfectly safe. 
So every time that uh, a certain area uh, has been identified that is going to have some sort of construction work, whether it's a, it's a offshore wind generator or a um, high voltage power cable, we need to do an analysis whether that is a, there is an UXO risk. The work always begins with a desk study, looking at the geodata to determine how the seabed looks now and how it looked 50 years ago. Combining historical open source data and restricted data, as well as the specialist knowledge of experts in the field, locations are assigned various risk levels. Second phase is what we call the UXO survey. In an offshore environment, we will use a typically a survey vessel that tows certain survey equipment behind it, and we will have uh, survey sensors on the vessel as well. We use um, acoustics, um, like a multi-beam sensor, to have a 3D model of the bathymetry of the of the seabed. We have a side scan sonar and a sub-bottom profiler, so there are different acoustic sensors with different frequencies. To detect objects on the surface of the seabed or objects buried to a depth of a couple of meters. And in addition to that, we can also use magnetometers, or if we use multiple magnetometers, we call it a gradiometer. And what we in effect do is we measure the differences in relation to the natural magnetic field of the Earth. And the, the, the Earth is one big magnet. It has a, its own magnetic field. And if there are any metal objects, you can detect these disturbances. So you have little spikes in your data. This is cutting-edge survey equipment. Then the specialists will process the data and come up with what's known as a master target list. A list of locations, each a potential resting place for unexploded ordnance. Then comes the next phase, the UXO identification phase. We will do a more detailed survey on specific targets. Uh, again, magnetometers, we will use um, electromagnetic uh, equipment, so that's where you generate an electromagnetic field. And, and this is similar to your metal detector, if people walking on the beach with a metal detector. These are more advanced, but a similar concept. And for the seabed? So you detect disturbances uh, with, with the, so those sensors and also acoustics. So there's there's whole different type of surface sensors again. If it's an offshore environment, we will use an ROV. That's a, a remote operated vehicle. It's like a subsea robot. We send to specific targets with these sensors, and we do a detailed sensor on that, uh, the target to get a better understanding what it is. And following those detailed surveys on specific targets, then uh, it's only a small percentage that is that we can really identify, OK, that's a real potential UXO. Depending on the shape and the data signature that they get, from those uh, few targets that are left, uh, yeah, we have, there's only one thing you can do is to, because they're in the seabed, you can't really see that, so uh, you have to clear it. In the modern world, this means a dredge pump on an ROV starts digging away at the seabed, while operators on a nearby vessel look on through cameras. Then, if it's a bomb or shell, there is a decision to be made. Perhaps the asset owner wants to relocate its asset could be expensive. Then, depending on the national legislation, this project may be required to call in the Coast Guard or the Marines for safe disposal. Technology has advanced to the point that sometimes the UXO can be extracted from the location, but often it means a controlled explosion. 
However, this can disrupt and kill marine life up to a radius of 30 kilometers. So, a double curtain is created around the bomb containing pressurized air. This disrupts the pressure wave from the explosion. So even though we do uh, this uh, low order detonation, you make sure that if there's any shock wave uh, coming through, you break down the shock wave, uh, it won't pass through this, uh, this bubble curtain. The end result of all this work is to give the owner of the project a LARP sign-off. A LARP stands for as low as reasonably possible. This is sign-off from an independent UXO expert to say an area has been surveyed to such an extent that it has passed a threshold to allow construction work to begin. Most of the survey work in shallow marine environments is really challenging. ROVs struggle to moor themselves in the surf zone, there is a heavy turnover of sediment on the seabed, and even barges struggle. The standard working platform in these surf zones is called a jackup. A jackup is any non-propelled or self-propelled vessel that is fitted with legs and a jacking system that allows it to elevate its hull above the sea surface. This creates a stationary working platform from which to, well, go after unexploded ordnance. So it, it jacks itself up from, uh, from the surface of the, of the water, while the, the legs uh, stand on the, on the sea mat. But this is a, a stationary situation. So to, to move a jack up, it needs to go uh, down again and in a floating uh, position. And then it can relocate either by a tugboat brought to another location, or if it, sometimes it's even self-propelled. And then it can uh, move to the next location. Then the cycle starts again. It starts uh, pushing those legs down and, and jacks itself up to a stationary situation. It is incredibly slow moving if there are a lot of nearby targets. And in a shallow surf zone, those struggling ROVs might tempt a project manager to opt for putting divers at risk. For Fugro and its engineers, the situation cried out for something better. The interesting thing about these offshore wind farms from an UXO perspective is they need to be connected to land by subsea high voltage direct current interconnector cables. For more information on these, check out episode number 157, Interconnectors, the Green Link to Ireland. Connecting to these farms means traversing this traditionally difficult surf zone. And one project is a critical onshoring hub for this offshore generation. It's been constructed by Tenet to onshore power from several neighbouring wind farms. The work was critical and so it called for two new pieces of equipment. So you have an offshore wind farm which is a few miles uh, out of the coast and it gets connected to the national grid uh, via uh, some, some serious high voltage uh, cables and in order to install these cables, the area needs to be needs to be cleared. And it was a specifically the surf zone at the landing site of these cables that was uh, yeah, proven to be uh, an impossibility to uh, yeah, to have that uh, to have that cleared. This is Ido Delisa, project manager for Fugro. He is referring to the conventional approach to working with such high stakes on such a critical project. And hence the solution of uh, the Wavewalker uh, came, in, uh, came into play. The Wavewalker is the first piece of equipment we will dance with today. Remember the jack-up barges we mentioned? Stationary on four legs, difficult, slow and risky to move. The Wavewalker has got eight legs, and which can 
reposition themselves alongside the deck. So what you would have is you would have four legs standing on the seabed and the other four legs uh, repositioning themselves, lower them on the seabed, pull up the previous ones. And in that case, you can make a, you can make a walking, walking motion. It's basically a spider-like sea platform walking along the seabed from one OXO target to the next OXO target, eliminating the need for tugboats within the project site. So we have a basis for our work. So we have the scope of work, which shows the locations of the, of the targets. The locations are provided to the, to the barge master and we ask him, please, could you uh, uh, relocate the wave walker to that and that position? So wave walker starts walking. We arrive on site. There are some positioning uh, checks that uh, that are going to happen. Systems are switched on. Excavator is switched on, and then the, the tool goes into the water over that location and try to find at first the the, the magnetic anomaly that was first observed. If we can't find it. The dredging operations uh, start, so we try to dig uh, the the hole a little deeper. And when when it's deep enough, we do another survey sweep, and we continue like that until we find the target. Although it eliminates the need for tugboats within the target site, we do mean the target site. The wave walker won't win any marathons. If you put on your if you put on your air maxes, then um, uh, I think we we achieved uh, eight meters an hour. But in operational terms, within a target area, this is a generational improvement. Check out our show notes for a video of the Wavewalker in operation. This platform gets the project team to the best location, but there was another tool developed in recent years that allows safe OXO intervention. There was definitely a technology gap. We worked a lot uh, offshore doing UXO identification offshore, basically, with ROVs. And those are fit for purpose. To, to excavate targets in a, in a low current environment up to one, one and a half, two meters uh, of water depth. This is Martin Valk, solution owner for UXO at Fugro. What we realized as soon as we moved closer to the beach or closer, closer into an estuary where every cable lands at some point, RVs are really struggling in those areas, uh, struggling with the current, but also often struggling with the larger depth of burial. ROVs can typically penetrate up to 1.5 to 2 metres below the seabed. But in those certain areas, you sometimes find UXOs buried up to 4 or 5 or even more, but deeper. And that's because of the, the mobile sediment. It's a very dynamic area often, or due to the initial impact uh, that the UXO buries itself. There was definitely a technology gap. We weren't very, uh, almost not successful actually in, in, in identifying those targets. And we set ourselves uh, a target actually to solve that problem. And from that, uh, yeah, we started the initial discussions to develop the Sea Orc. That is Sea Orc, like the bird. Look, it's an incredible piece of equipment and we will explain it now, but we have linked to another video in our show notes so listeners can have a visual if they want. Basically, the Sea Orc is a tool that is mounted on the boom of an excavator, which itself sits on the wave walker. So basically, it's, it's a very sizable dredgehead. About four meters high. To deal with, with removing uh, larger amounts of, of overburden. Then we integrated quite smartly on, on the right positions an acoustic camera 
which allows to give visibility in moments when there is no visibility by side, basically. So it's an acoustic camera. We integrated an EM system, so an electromagnetic system, to perform an S-found. So from the survey, you know there's a target, but if you go there again, you need to find it again. So but that tool is used to confirm, to reconfirm uh, the position of the, uh, of the potential UXO. Then, because an electromagnetic system is limited to detecting ferrous objects to depths of 1.5 to 2 meters, we also fitted magnetometers on there, uh, which can look more deep into the soil. The tool also has water injection, so we can stir up a little bit of the more stiffer soil that, that optimizes the dredging process. And we integrated the peel grab, so if we see there's a, it's not a UXO that's confirmed and it's safe to remove. Just some piece of discarded ferrous metal. We can easily grab it and, and put it outside the cable corridor for our, um, for our client if they, if they want to. Martin says that this replaces the use of ROVs in environments inappropriate for them. Yeah, so we worked in the past also with, uh, with ROVs with, with tracks underneath there, so they would drive all, all up into the, into, the, into the shallows. Uh, again, those would suffer from low workability uh, because of the current and because of the, the wave interaction and the low productivity in, in terms of, of dredge capacity, actually. Divers is also definitely uh, is an option to, to consider in the, in the tidal zone, basically, but brings uh, an HSC risk, actually. In order to excavate those, those, those objects in, in the surf zone, you need to have also a dive ring, actually. So the diver needs to climb into a ring uh, and then together with the ring, remove soil until you, you reach that object. And that's clearly an HSC exposure. And within Figaro, we, we, the, the philosophy is if, if you can avoid divers, uh, you should always try to do so. And that's mm -hmm. also one of the reasons we started developing the, the SEAWG. We, at this instance, and we're looking at further innovation as well, but at this instance, it's designed to, to take on the, the water depth zonation basically from, from, from zero meter LAT up to 10 meter LAT. And that means it gives sufficient overlap with the offshore spread, so that can move into eight, seven meters. And there's also some overlap from the land side. Covering that critical zone between the land OXO and the deep water OXO work, the innovation Martin mentioned is an attempt to make the Sea Orc efficient in the shallower end of its depth range. But Edo is the project manager, and this was the first use of the Sea Orc and the Wave Walker in combination. So what does he think of its performance? Yeah, it was, it was an exciting... Uh... Exciting times, uh, especially during the, uh, the mobilization and uh, the whole team that, uh, that were on board uh, the Wavewalker during the project. Uh, they were also involved in the mobilization and the preparation. Uh, so everybody was very curious uh, to see yeah, how, how the tool would perform. And after the, after the mobilization, so we went to the, to the project site, everybody was very keen to, uh, yeah, to, get, to get, starting, get started right away. But relatively quick, yeah, it became apparent that, that the tool was, yeah, was functioning exactly what it was uh, designed for. As for the Wavewalker, as any offshore platform or vessel, it's relatively sparse and utilitarian. Maybe 20 people in total, of which seven were Wavewalker crew, three were catering and ten were the UXO team. The platform is maybe 40 by 40 metres, and during operations of the excavator controlling the Sea Orc tool, all crew are located to the opposite side of the Wavewalker for safety. The equipment is controlled remotely as it is considered inside the splash zone. 
so this allows for safe operation. The mobilization phase of two new pieces of technology working together for the first time is a real test for a project manager, and Edo says that preparation of the key was a key lesson learned. Yeah, so the the, the Wavewalker was moored alongside uh, the key side in uh, Aimuiden with a very big excavator that uh, needed, uh, well, firstly to be uh, to be installed, prepared. Uh, that, that excavator came on five different lorries, and it had to be <laughs> assembled. And um, you, know, you can't assemble that on on um, you know, on a naked key side, huh? so you have to protect it with wooden uh, wooden beams and steel plates and. That required uh, quite some preparation. Then that excavator needed to drive itself on board the the wave walker. So a bridge uh, was constructed uh, for that uh, for that purpose. Yeah, and all of these things they 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 sort of occurred in the well, the last moments of the of the preparation phase, which you know we would now uh, not have anymore, of course, because we know what we can expect. From a tactical project management perspective. Edo also prefers 24-hour operation to minimise sandback filling into already dredged holes, and believes that is something that will be investigated. However, Martin explains that the project requirements meant that 24-hour operations were undesirable from a strategic point of view. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, for this particular project, we went with uh, with 12 hours because it uh, we had to work in in simultaneous operations with with another contractor. Uh, with an excavator. It was also in the reserve zone, so a quite complex area. And therefore, for safety reasons, it was decided actually to, to operate the tool on a 12-hour basis. Another consideration on this particular project was the fact that we uh, we foreseen to, to clear about one, one target per day because of the large depth of burial. And the Wavewalker, although a very, very innovative uh, platform and, and increases definitely the workability, it needed to move as well. And it, it doesn't move that fast, actually. So we, we thought the most optimal approach was to do UXO identification during daylight and then move the spread uh, overnight. It gently would walk to the next target, actually, which was 30, 40 meters away, which could be covered in a, in a night. It's fascinating to see an industry adapt in real time to a game-changing technology and how different teams decide how best to optimise it. In the end, the team achieved the best result for any UXO survey. No UXO whatsoever. However, they did find something. Here's Ido. Yes, yes, yeah, we found, uh, yeah, we found some interesting steel beams. That's right, yeah. So... We were working on uh, on one of the targets, and we were getting very close. And we could even see certain things on the on the on the cameras, uh, yeah, the submerged cameras as well. It was decided that it it is not a uh, a UXO, so we were allowed to use the the grab. We did uh, we did a few grabs, and um, yeah, all of a sudden the the yeah the grabs were full of steel beams, and at first yeah. Look like like scrap scrap metal, but uh, a few guys of the team they had a closer look and they found you know, some peculiar markings on uh, on these on these steel beams, and yeah they they yeah they immediately were triggered that uh, it could be it could be something. So we notified uh, the client. Yeah, we told them we found this. We're going to place it 
on deck, store it, set aside, and we need to find out what it exactly is. So at the end of the project, the archaeologists were already informed, so they were on the quayside waiting for us to offload that uh, material. They took a few pictures and um, yeah, uh, the next day we heard that um, they confirmed it was about 250-300 year old steel that came from Sweden apparently. What it was for we don't we don't really know but it was a whole bundle of um, uh, these uh, these steel beams and apparently it was cargo that was yeah, either either dumped, maybe the uh, the vessel was in was in trouble and it needed to offload its material to get off the sandbank, or the whole the whole boat uh, disappeared. I don't, we're not really sure, but uh, the heritage is Sweden, and that's yeah, a few hundred years old, and a few museums uh, already showed an interest in uh, displaying some of these. At the end of an industrial project, looking to avoid the hazards we have inherited from the past. It is fantastic and somehow fitting to instead be left with a link to our industrial history. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Jane Sophia. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own hopeful dud is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Fugro. And thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. And don't forget to check out our website and sign up to our newsletter for the latest engineering announcements and developments from around the world. Thank you.